What's up, everybody? Grace and peace. Ingrid! Grace and peace to you, sister. Good to see everybody. Who ran today? Raise your hand. If you ran... What? Did you shower? You guys are... Who cares? You guys are fast. Crystal didn't run, though she has the shirt on. She was not that fast. Neither did her husband, so where she got the shirt, no one knows. Oh man, it's good to be here with you. Um, My name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I hope to get to sometime and to hear your story and to share some of my own. Uh, But if this is your first time at Grace Chapel, I hope that you have the opportunity to uh, experience the grace and love of Jesus this morning. And uh, we hope that that's experienced in everything that we do. The words that we say, the prayers we pray, the songs we sing, but certainly as we turn our attention to God's word. We've been in a series about uh, doubt and, and deconstruction and how to work through series and see, how to work through seasons of doubt without destroying our faith. And it was my intention this morning to preach a sermon that needs to be preached on why you should continue to come to church when church is the thing that hurt you, when church is the problem. And that is a very important message to preach, but I wasn't there yet. So you'll have to come back next week. Uh, I just wasn't. I, I just wasn't there yet. It seemed. It seemed like it was. I needed another week. And so then it was like, well, what do you preach this week? Like you go to Philippians. That's what you do. You go to Philippians, and you talk about the race that is the Christian life and Paul's vision of Christian maturity. Uh, that he presents there. So will you turn there with me? Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be focusing in on verses 12 through uh, chapter 4 verse 1. But as I read the scripture this morning, I want to kind of take a ski jump here by, uh, by reading what came beforehand. So I'm actually going to start... In verse 8. I'll start in verse 7. Philippians chapter 3 verse 7. This is God's word. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, And the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now this is our text. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Sisters and brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, My joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, may the the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be beautiful to you this morning. Oh, Christ, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Um, This is a text about Christian maturity. The upward call of Christ. To become like Christ. And what it looks like to grow and mature as a Christian person. And Paul gives us a, a helpful idea of what that journey looks like for us. So I just want to look at that together uh, in honor of the marathon this morning and the athletic imagery that he uses. Um, The first thing that we learn is encouraging in that it's the mature Christian person is always reminding you of how far they have to go. The Christian maturity begins with humbly acknowledging a need for growth. Did you hear it in the passage? 
He says, oh, not that I have already obtained this. Not that I am already perfect. And then if that wasn't specifically plain, uh, we feel in effect the force of of his repetition in verse 13 when he writes, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made this my own yet. So Paul is emphatic here. I have a long ways to go. And in case you didn't feel the force of his argument through that threefold repetition, he further emphasizes and highlights this point with some significant and ironic wordplay. So the word perfect in verse 12 is the same word that's translated mature in verse 15. Why would the Bible translators use two different words? The Bible's weird. And so are the people who translate it. They're just trying to keep us on our toes, apparently. And so what he says is the the word perfect in verse 12 is the same as mature. So he's saying, y'all, I haven't reached maturity. And let all of those who are mature think in this way. I haven't become perfect. Or the people who, who are close to becoming perfect realize how imperfect they are, is the force of it. Let those of us who are mature recognize our immaturity. Uh, when you dig into Paul's letters, you see that this idea of this vision of Christian progress is kind of lived out by the apostle in a really profound way. Early in Paul's ministry, during his three missionary journeys, Paul makes a very humble statement about himself in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's a decent dose of humility worth noticing the least of the apostles. But towards the middle of his ministry, uh, Paul writes another letter to the Ephesians, and in that letter he says, I am the very least of all the saints. And so Paul goes, is further along in his Christian journey, and he's gone from being the least of the apostles to the least of, of all the saints. And then finally you get to the end of his ministry um, during his second Roman imprisonment and in one of his final letters he famously says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Some translations will say the chief of sinners. And so from the least of the apostles to the least of all the saints to the chief of all sinners. It sounds like he's going backwards and not forwards. He sounds like a spiritual failure, like he's regressing spiritually. 
But for Paul, and this is the point, growing spiritually is not arriving at some point where you somehow need the cross and mercy less. It's realizing how utterly dependent you are on the grace and the mercy and the love and the patience of God. So that at the very end of our journey, we can say, along with Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I love that. That Jesus has so loved me that my life might become an example, a, a trophy of his grace and patient love. That that's what the mature life is in Christ. It is a portrait and picture of God's grace God's love for everything that's gone wrong, for all the ways that you've messed up, for every second, third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth chance that you've needed. At the end of our life, what's going to be beautiful about us is that we are these monuments of God's grace, examples of His patience. The larger point is that following Jesus should humble us. Perplexing is that following Jesus often has the opposite effect on people. Research consistently shows that evangelical Christians are increasingly known for being narrow-minded, prideful, and deeply intolerant. If, if that's the case, like if that's the direction of your life, from being more mellow to more narrow, you are not growing up in Jesus. And yet for both my conservative and progressive friends, I feel like there's a movement not to the mellow middle, <laughs> but to the further extremes. Um, that's not growing up in Jesus. Uh, Even if you put religion aside, developmental psychologists will talk about kind of a three-stage process of growth as we become mature. Stage one is in our childhood and in our family of origin when we're kind of handed a worldview a theory of how the world works. And that's good and healthy, but it tends to be very black and white. It's very rigid in stage one. And most of us are very self-righteous when we're five. Uh, We think we know more than we do, and what life is usually seen in black and white. We don't have a lot of capacity to wrestle with the ambiguity of the human condition. And then there's stage two, 
which is deconstruction. As you become an adult and you realize that there's these problems and tensions with your worldview, you realize all the ways your, your template was skewed and biased by your, where you came from and from your culture or whatever. And then we begin to doubt and, and question and probe and search after truth. Because on the one hand, what you were handed was good and beautiful and true. And on the other hand, you've realized it's not sufficient. And in some ways, it's been corrupted by sin. And now you have to try to sift through the mess. But then comes reconstruction. Stage three. When you rebuild a, a, a worldview and, and mental maps to live by, based on your own lived-in experience and the best wisdom of previous generations. And now we begin to own certain things more fully than we ever have before, and we hold a lot of other things with an open hand. So stage three is what philosophers call the second naivete. It's, it's, the, it's the faith of a child that Jesus talks about. Faith, but deeper and more beautiful. It's gone through the desert wastelands of of disenchantment and modern skepticism, and it's come out uh, the other side, older and wiser and more experienced, with scars, having gone through all the rabbit holes with all of the emotions, and we come back to this new place of humble, trusting joy. We live in a stage one and stage two culture. We have very little stage three. And there's a conservative version of stage one, which is kind of bumper sticker theology. The Bible says it. I believe it. And that settles it. And it doesn't allow any space for doubt or pain or data points that don't align with a particular theological system. And in that way, it confuses one's interpretation of the Bible with the Bible itself. And as good as our systems of theology are, everything we have has been corrupted by human fallenness. But there's a progressive version of stage one, too, where people kind of in the same way throw on the bumper stickers and parrot fad lingo of certain ideologies and unthinkingly accept ideas that are full of contradictions and, and bias just because somebody said it on the Instagram. And, and just like the conservatives, they don't allow space for doubt or questions. And, and you're shamed if you kind of question the, the dogma. But overall, we're a stage two culture. You kind of move through all of that because you can only stay zealous for too long. And you realize that both extremes are bonkers. But the brokenness of having to work through it has made us scared of believing anything at all. And we end up being stuck in a kind of limbo where you're You're more against certain things than you're for anything in specific. More doubt than faith. More skepticism than confidence. 
it seems like less and less of us are making it to stage three. Those deep and beautiful people who who are for more things than they're against. Who have a beautiful faith in God, scriptures, morality, truth with a capital T, but also with this capacity for compassion and this understanding of just how strange and broken and confusing and ambiguous the human condition is. People who are willing to live with this high... uh, with this high capacity for paradox and a deep humility and wisdom and compassion and also conviction. Those people exist. Some of them are in the room this morning and Paul is one of them. He's made it through. He, it's possible he, he knows he's not perfect, but look at his passion. It's the humble acknowledgement of one who hasn't arrived, but doesn't let that be an excuse for a complacent heart. Rather, his zeal has been purified. Notice the language that he uses here. This athletic language of of straining, pressing ahead for the prize. Twice he says, I'm pressing on. It's the picture of an athletic race. A marathoner or half marathoner striving to win the thing. You read the passage and you kind of feel its intensity. The guy described in verses 13 and 14 is not jogging. No hate to joggers. Jogging is what I do. And I applaud anyone who moves, actually. I have deep admiration for moving people. But jogging is not this guy. This is the the straining runner with every muscle engaged, focused on the prize, like on the finish line, passionate about running in a way to win, whatever that is. And through this metaphor, Paul's trying to communicate something about Christian growth and maturity, that it doesn't just take patience, it takes effort. No one stumbles into being a mellow, joyful, spirit of the fruit bearing person by accident. Um, It takes effort. It's that old Dallas Willard quote, so good. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace just isn't about taking away your sins. It's about, it's about, grace is meant to be an experience like dynamite in the heart of a person that energizes and renews and perfects love and faithfulness and motivates us uh, to become new people. And to do that, 
there's two things we need to do, he says. I spend my energy, my effort, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. First, forgetting what lies behind. What was Paul forgetting? And no doubt that included some of the credentials that he had listed earlier in chapter 3. His impressive resume that he boasted in until Christ seized him. He's not resting on his laurels. Like a laurel is like the, the Christmas wreath they put around your head. instead. Like our current version of it is the cheap medal you get at the end of the race. Like he's not resting on the medals that he's gotten previously. Um, which is interesting because Paul would have been a Christian somewhere between 25 to 30 years when he penned these words. So having been converted some 25 to 30 years previously, and he's a man imprisoned currently for his faith, so he's done some stuff for Jesus, he's still going. It kind of reminds me of, of Dale Taylor. So Dale Taylor, I don't know how much older he is than me, but he spent his whole life serving Jesus as a missionary. Dale Taylor sacrifices more for Jesus on a Thursday than I have in my whole entire life. And he preached on the, uh, uh, the Great Commission here a couple weeks ago. And afterwards, he sent me an email that said, Ben, I would just love to hear your thoughts on my sermon because I would really like to improve. And I thought, what in the world would I have to give to you? What humility to ask a guy that much younger about giving him some... I mean, it sounds like Paul. It sounds like Paul. Refusing to be satisfied with prior knowledge of our Savior. Refusing to be satisfied with past service. Forgetting what lies behind. But it's not just the successes that we forget. Of course, it's our failures that can slow us down. So Paul's life was certainly marked by that as well. In that earlier section, he talks about what it meant to have a kind of zeal that led him to persecute the church. But Paul doesn't let what's true of his past limit who can, he can be for God in the future. Uh, he doesn't think that his previous experiences disqualified him in any way for the race. Uh, we all have moments in our lives that haunt us. And sometimes we give those moments too much power in our lives. And we can never get past it. It says it limits how far we think we can go in Christ. Uh, but Jesus, of course, comes to break the power of canceled sin. Jesus comes to, to take the penalty of our sins so we can have freedom, so that we can have a new identity, so that we can become new creations, so that we are not defined by our worst moments but by God's grace at work inside of us. And so he's forgetting what lies behind. And Peter O'Brien, in his wonderful commentary on Philippians, puts it like this. He says, Paul will not allow either the achievements of the past 
which God has wrought, or for that matter, his failures as a Christian to prevent his gaze from being fixed firmly on the finish line. In this sense, he forgets as he runs. And I love that expression. He forgets as he runs. But notice that he doesn't just forget what lies behind. He strains forward for what is ahead, which he calls the goal or the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, what in the world is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? And I think he actually defined it earlier uh, in chapter 3 when he says that I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. And then later on he says that I may know him, becoming like him. That is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To, more, to know more fully and to treasure more deeply what he has done for me and in doing that to become more like him. To become like him. Becoming like Jesus becomes Paul's main thing. What if coming to church and singing these songs and listening to these sermons and going to our small groups, what if prayer and fellowship and discipleship meant that this community was focused on one thing and that one thing was each of us becoming more like Jesus? There's a lot of Strange things we can think about what we're doing in this moment. But the most basic thing that we're doing is we're trying to come together to apprentice after Jesus and to become more like him. It's that old C.S. Lewis quote. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men and women into Christ. To make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. What does a mature Christian look like? It looks like a man or a woman becoming more like Jesus. Uh, St. John of the Cross, uh, that great Spanish mystic, in his book, Ascent to Mount Carmel, offers three valuable counsels for someone who wants to move from immaturity to maturity. And I thought about them as I thought about this text. They all have to do with following Jesus. I read these when I was uh, a very young believer, and they've just stuck with me. His first counsel is that any Christian should study the life of Christ constantly, meditate on it, and try in every way to bring their own lives in conformity to his teaching. To just soak in the Sermon on the Mount until it becomes like oxygen to us. 
His second counsel is that we then try more deeply to imitate Christ by trying to imitate his motivation, like his compassion, his mercy, his heart. That our actions are less important than the reason that we do them. Christ acted not because it brought him pleasure or ultimately enhanced his own life. There was always a higher reason to do his Father's will and to try to bring life into the lives of people, even at the expense of his own life. And that is to be our motivation. And then his third counsel is after we make the decision to try to imitate Christ's motivation, we should test ourselves to see if the same difficulties and pains that flowed into Christ's life are flowing into our life as well. Hence, John cautions us to be suspicious if the cross of Christ does not begin to find us in our lives. And what I want us to see is that is Paul's concern as well. When he talks about Christ, he talks about knowing the power of his resurrection and being able to share in his sufferings, becoming more like him in his death. And then in our little pericope here, our little section of the text, after humbly acknowledging a need of growth and passion, saying he's passionately pursuing his Savior, he invites the congregation to follow Christ-bearing disciples. Look at verse 17. He says, Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And if you were to go back in the book of Philippians and look at the examples that Paul points to, it's revealing. Because the thing that they all have in common is that they all suffered for Jesus. Paul himself puts himself forward as an example in his willingness to be poured out for others. He points to his brother Timothy, who always would seek the interests of others uh, and Christ before his own interest. He talks about a man named Epaphroditus who nearly died bringing Paul this money that the Philippian church had donated to his ministry. And of course, in Philippians chapter 2, he talks about Christ as being the example par excellence who took on the form of a servant and took that servant's form all the way to the cross. These are all people who he says were able to make real sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. And Paul encourages the Philippians to look at these faithful examples in the present because he knows that those aren't the only examples the church has. And so he warns them then of cross-denying, earthly-minded examples that they need to avoid. Look in the next section, verses 18 and 19. It says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These are folks who say they follow Christ, but whose lives bear little resemblance to their Savior. 
They are enemies of the cross of Christ. The idea of suffering is completely missing. They they don't talk about the cross as their greatest boast. They don't want to take up their cross and participate in a fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And so their ethic isn't consistent with their profession. So unlike the folks that Paul is asking us to imitate, these folks care only about pleasure. And so he says their God is their belly, their stomachs. They mean to serve their appetites. They seek to please the self. They are a law unto themselves. Instead of living in grateful worship to God, they are the center of the universe. And he says their glory is their shame. They delight in things that God finds shameful, and they have their minds set on earthly things. Follow these godly examples. Take heed of those who avoid the cross. And in all of it, he's saying, take mind of who's influencing you. Who you are around and who you're listening to matters. What you allow to shape you matters. In preparation for this sermon series, I read a Barna statistic that said that, and this statistic was for conservative millennial evangelicals who love Jesus. And it said that people in that category consumed 3,000 hours of digital media every year. And only, I forget how many, it was like 12 hours was of anything having to do with Jesus. That's not, you're like, that's a big chunk of input that doesn't have to do with our Savior, that's, that's going to matter. Are you around people who are going to invite you to do the right thing even when it's hard? When you're struggling in your marriage and you go out and you have a drink with your buddies and you're like, I can't believe she did this or that. Are they saying, yeah, I can't believe that either. Are they saying, man, what's wrong with you? You need to love your wife. Let me help you with that. Let me pray for you. Are you around Jesus-loving people who are constantly reminding you of what's true and beautiful and good, and that what's true and beautiful and good often requires patience and sacrifice? This is a good quote from A.J. Swoboda's book, After Faith. And he's talking about people who have experienced suffering in their lives. He says, I've long noted something different about people like C.S. Lewis, Henri Nouwen, Brennan Manning, and Flannery O'Connor. Each of these endured excruciating seasons of difficulty in their faith. Lewis struggled with bouts of grief and depression after his his wife's death. Uh, Nowen struggled with his sexuality. Manning was a drunk who never really got clean. O'Connor spent her entire adult life with lupus, making even standing for long periods of time impossible. And eventually it took her life. What do these writers have? And I love this. He says, they have patina. 
those brown stains that appear on a baking sheet after 70 years of putting it in the oven. Patina is the sign of grit, of long suffering, of endurance, of having been through the fire. You can smell the riders who have patina. Their writings reflect the faith of those who didn't get everything they wanted. Yet they continued. They long suffered. They remained. They would have traded their struggle for anything. Ask a mother in labor who pushes a little child out of her body how she's feeling. She'd scream in pain, but she'd keep going. Why? Because of the glory that is to come. The Christian heroes who speak most to us are always the ones who didn't get everything they wanted out of this life. And that's true. I think a lot of the reason that people are leaving the church is because we have a cheap grace culture. A low discipleship culture that doesn't make us more like Jesus. So why come? The TED Talks are better than what you're getting right now. You know what I mean? It can't just be about the entertainment. We can't get the microphones to work. It's got to be that small groups, there's people who are, they bother you. It's got to be about Jesus and becoming more like him. We have a Christianity without a cross. And the result is an undisciplined soul. That is coddled and given free reign. And we're sad and anxious and narrow and rigid because of it. Rather than letting Christ's grace and love and spirit conquer our hearts. And make us more like him. So for those keeping score. Those who think that they're mature, humbly acknowledge that they're not there. They passionately pursue the Savior. They follow Christ bear, or cross-bearing disciples. And finally, and this will be short, they live in light of heavenly hope. Verses 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Brothers and sisters, that deserves eight weeks of sermons on every word, us pausing and meditating on the beauty of coming glory. In a day when Christ comes and makes all things new, And we are to lift our heads to it and to raise our gaze to where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we are to set our minds and hearts on these heavenly realities and to rejoice in them and to long for them. Our hope is not in this world. This isn't the final life. This life isn't even the real life. The truest life. The life that is to come. In the, in the resurrection. That's where my joy is coming from. And what it means to know Christ and to have him and to, to, to gain him and to be with him and like him in that final state. 
in that glorious city, the new Jerusalem, and to be a part of that bride prepared to meet her groom and to be joined with them at the marriage supper of the lamb and then to look at my lover in 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 the face and to have him wipe every tear from my eyes having put away death forever and somehow made my body awesome (laughs) and glorious putting away sickness and disease so that I can enjoy him and the world for all eternity without my joy diminishing ever. Mature people think about that. Trying to get all your joy out of this world is trying to get water from a rock. This is just too broken, it's too hard. We look to the future. Can I pray for us? My gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this testimony of Paul and what he, he calls us to maturity. He calls us to this, this vision of life in Jesus. This upward call to be more like Christ and to experience his love more fully. A call that, on the one hand, will make us more mellow, more understanding, more gracious, uh, more forgiving, but also more passionate about the one thing that matters most, Christ and his life in me. And so... Um, whatever I don't know what people need to take away from this. Maybe there's something that they need to forget um, and leave behind. Maybe they need to remember to strain forward and to remember what this thing is all about in the first place, which is Christ and becoming like Him. Maybe it's that glorious hope purchased for us of uh, of our of our future in Jesus. Whatever it is, would these words encourage our heart and help us on the journey? I pray that they would, and I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.